Maria Luisa Cota de Lopez was born in Baja, in Spanish-controlled Mexico in 1776, the auspicious year the far-off colonist on the other side of the continent had declared independence from the British Empire. Only five years before, in 1771, the controversial Franciscan father, Junipero Serra, had founded Mission San Gabriel in what we now know as Los Angeles County. In the late 18th century, L.A. County was a dusty, far-flung colonial outpost, sparsely populated with Spanish migrants in vast swaths of foreboding nature and a few newly constructed ranchos. The Mission San Gabriel, with its enslaved native Californians, Spanish padres, and government officials, was where Maria Luisa, known as Doña Luisa, would spend much of her life. Doña Luisa had moved to Southern California at a young age. She arrived in the glorious Days of the Dawns, an era later romanticized by Eurocentric, patriarchal Victorian mythmakers. They described it as a time when cultured Spaniards, daring horsemen, extravagantly courteous and well-dressed, were the lords of Southern California, operating prosperous ranchos, helped by their beautifully submissive and innocent wives and daughters. Doña Luisa married one of these dons, Claudio Lopez, the powerful superintendent of the Mission San Gabriel. She gave birth at least ten times. Only four children would survive to adulthood and was known as a skilled artisan and a wonderful cook, much in demand for her culinary skills on feast days, which were the highlight of the Hard Scrabble Missions calendar. By 1836, Doña Luisa was 60 years old, a highly respected widow, an immensely hospitable woman, who watched over her expansive family network. Her network included some of the most prosperous landowners in the area. Southern California had been unhappily under Mexican control since 1821, when the country had fought for independence from Spain. One early spring afternoon in 1836, Doña Luisa peacefully sat in her tranquil arbor outside her comfortable adobe in the small village of Los Angeles, near where the L.A. Plaza sits today. L.A. had grown into a community of a few hundred people, about eight miles from the Mission San Gabriel. A young boy appeared, leading a riderless horse that he found all alone in a field by the river about two miles away. Knowing it was Doña Luisa's mare, he had brought it back to its rightful owner. When Doña Luisa saw the mare, saddle still on, she gasped. She had loaned the mare to her nephew, José Domingo Feliz, that morning. According to John MacFarger's amazing, meticulously researched book, Eternity Street, Violence and Justice in Frontier Los Angeles, which by far offers the most complete account of the story we are telling. Doña Luisa knew this riderless mare signaled an epic tragedy had occurred. My heart tells me Don Domingo is dead, she cried, that he has been murdered. I'm Hadley Mears. And this is the inaugural episode of Underbelly L.A.
I want to take a little break here to introduce myself and what Underbelly LA is all about. My name is Hadley, and I'm originally from North Carolina, and I've now been in Los Angeles for almost 14 years. I came out here obsessed with movie stars and the glamour of Hollywood lights, and quickly found out that the most fascinating history of LA is the dark side, the shadows beneath the spotlight where the secrets lie. Through my work as a historical journalist, I've uncovered tales of murder, deceit, and straight-up shadiness. I hope in this podcast to shine a light on some of the grime of Los Angeles, the city of noir, and the city of shadows. Also, a quick disclaimer right off the bat, please excuse my Spanish pronunciations. The southern girl is doing her absolute best. And now, on with the show. Maria del Rosario Villa, known as Charo to her friends and family, was born in 1814 in Southern California. Much like Doña Luisa, she came from an influential and highly respectable Catholic family. She was the granddaughter of Guillermo Soto, one of the first mayors of Los Angeles. Charo was baptized at the Mission San Gabriel, and only 14 years later, she was married in the Mission's chapel. Her family had made for her an excellent match, at least on paper. 23-year-old Jose Domingo Feliz was the co-heir to the sprawling Rancho Los Feliz and the ancestor of one of L.A.'s founding fathers to boot. The fame of the Feliz family was as old as the Pueblo of Los Angeles itself, which means it was still pretty young. Its patriarch was the firm but fair Jose Vicente Feliz, a strapping soldier and government official, who in 1781 led the original 44 settlers from the Mission San Gabriel to establish the commercial and residential outpost of Los Angeles on the banks of the L.A. River. For a time, Feliz was made the de facto mayor of the new Pueblo, and around 1800 he was granted over 6,000 acres of ranch land outside the town, eight miles upriver. Called Rancho Los Feliz, or the Happy Farm, the Feliz family ranch prospered, due to its inexhaustible supplies of lumber, water, and game. Domingo Feliz was not quite as impressive as his famous forefather, a weak and sickly child with a pronounced limp. According to Farragher, he was cruelly nicknamed the Gimp. Domingo took his bride to live in the adobe on his family's rancho, no doubt assuming Charo would become the perfectly dutiful California wife in the mold of Aunt Doña Luisa Lopez. The trouble developed very early in the marriage. Charo accused Domingo of infidelity and seems to have been frankly bored by him and isolated rancho life. She gave birth to two children, both of whom died in infancy. In 1834, at the age of 19, Charo escaped life at the rancho and ran off with Hervasio Alapas, a cowboy who worked at Rancho Los Alamos, 30 miles away. Hervasio and his brother Damaso though from a respectable California family, were notoriously hot-headed and brazen, having taken part in a revolt to overthrow the Mexican governor years before. For two years, Hervasio and Charo lived together openly, a slap in the face to all that the Lopez Feliz clan stood for. The lovers frequently ran into Domingo, how could they not in such a small colonial community, and enjoyed taunting and mocking him with Charo often making the cruelest jabs. One night in a tavern, the two men came to blows, 
with the slight Domingo surprising everybody by injuring Hervasio more. A humiliated Hervasio was determined to one day get back at Domingo. But Domingo had other plans. In early spring of 1836, Domingo obtained a warrant from the mayor of Los Angeles to retrieve, by force if necessary, his rightful property, his wife, Charo Felice. On March 24th, Domingo and his brother Antonio rode to the Mission San Gabriel, warrant in hand. It was the mission's feast day, a day of singing, dancing, and eating Doña Luisa's delicious food. Well aware that his estranged wife never missed a party, Domingo was not surprised to find Charo already at the mission's festivities. He was surprised, however, to find her alone. Together with Antonio, Domingo forced Charo onto his horse, and the three headed back to the Pueblo of Los Angeles. Fast on their heels was Hervasio's brother, Damaso, who rode after them making obscene gestures and shouting, Today the fleeces die. Domingo and Antonio Felice took Charo to the Los Angeles home of their aunt, Doña Luisa. Who better to welcome Charo back into the fold than the kindly old matriarch? The brothers probably thought Doña Luisa would be the perfect role model for the headstrong teen. After giving Charo a big hug, Doña Luisa set about making a tasty feast for the lost lamb who had been found. Other members of the Lopez Felice clan joined, with Charo seemingly having a pleasant reunion with her estranged in-laws turned abductors. Charo was probably just biding her time. Next door, murder was already brewing. L.A. was a small town, and the Alipas brothers' uncle lived in an adobe right next to Doña Luisa's. Hervasio, who had caught wind of his lover's soft-handed kidnapping, probably from a family member, hurried over to his uncle's house and somehow made his presence known to Charo. Charo waited until midnight and then attempted to escape. However, she was stopped by her father-in-law and dutifully went back to bed. The next morning, Domingo took Charo to visit a wealthy and respected government official in his grand adobe on L.A.'s Central Plaza for some very one-sided counseling. Charo was chided and shamed for her conduct, Domingo was just urged to be the Catholic gentleman that he was and to forgive his wife, so that the couple could again live together in a peace and harmony that they never seemed to have mastered in the first place. Both Charo and Domingo agreed to try and make their marriage work, and after the session headed back to Doña Luisa's adobe. What Domingo didn't know was that Hervasio was shadowing their every move, and according to Eternity Street, murmuring and cursing to himself like a madman. Back at his uncle's house that evening, his lover, tantalizingly close yet just out of his grasp, Hervasio sharpened his knife on an old wheat stone, swearing that he would, quote, make a party for Charo and her gimp. Early the next morning, Domingo prepared to take Charo home, back to the Rancho Los Feliz. 
His brother Antonio urged him to wait until he could accompany the couple, knowing that there was safety in numbers. Despite Dona Luisa also encouraging them to stay, Charo would have none of it. Why wait for your brother? I suppose you're afraid. But what can happen? She taunted her husband. Let's go. And so they went, both sitting on Dona Luisa's mare. In a beautiful passage from Eternity Street, Farragher described Dona Luisa's last impression of her nephew, Domingo. He writes, Dona Luisa bid them goodbye as they headed off. She watched as her nephew removed his sombrero and gallantly waved farewell. She saw him place the hat on his wife's head to protect her from the morning sun. She noted the silk bandana tied about the crown of his head in the fashion of the day. The details long remained vivid for her, since it was the last time she saw her nephew alive. What happened next is open for conjecture. According to Hervasio, in a rage, he followed Domingo and Charo from Doña Luisa's house and then took a shortcut to catch them off guard. Charo admitted that she was hoping her lover would save her, but that she was surprised when her husband was suddenly ripped off the horse they were riding together. Next thing she knew, Domingo was squirming on a dusty makeshift road an enraged Hervasio standing over him with his recently sharpened knife. Hervasio later claimed that Charo urged him on, crying, Strike, Hervasio, strike, I shall be your reward. Hervasio brutally stabbed and slashed Domingo to death, leaving him unrecognizable. The lovers then dragged Domingo's lifeless body into a gully and took off to hide in the high chaparral of the hills that ringed Los Angeles. Neither spoke much. There was nothing left to say. After the young boy brought Doña Luisa back her escaped mare, she sprung into action. A search party was formed and began to scour the primitive route from the Pueblo to Rancho Los Feliz. Only a few hours later, they found Domingo's battered body. Everybody in the search party knew Domingo, and there were bitter tears and wails as they carried their fallen friend's corpse to La Placita, L.A.'s Catholic Church, the center of religious life, built by enslaved Native Californians just off the plaza. Candles were lit, and while the Lopez Feliz clan gathered around Domingo, praying and crying, a posse set out to find the obvious suspect, Hervasio Alipas. That night, Hervasio was easily discovered, crouched in the hills outside L.A., but Charo was nowhere to be found. Hervasio was brought back on horseback to the plaza, where an angry mob had formed outside of the church where Domingo's corpse lay. Death to Hervasio! Death to the monster! they cried. Government officials succeeded in calming down the crowd, and they threw a shackled Hervasio into the Curatel, L.A.'s first attempt at a jail. Completed in 1786, the structure had originally been a guardhouse before becoming the area's only prison. 
according to the L.A. Times. It was a solid adobe building, square in shape, with a red-tiled roof, thick walls, and small windows guarded by iron bars. So while Hervasio stewed inside his dank adobe cell, the Pueblo of Los Angeles filled with the faithful from all across the area, who had come to town to celebrate Palm Sunday at La Placita. The next morning, hundreds attended the funeral of José Domingo Feliz. Conspicuously absent was his wife, Charo, who was still missing and assumed either guilty or dead by her enraged lover's hand. Domingo's body was then interred in the Campo Santo, the churchyard of La Placita, which was consecrated in 1823 and was already becoming crowded with the Catholic dead. Died in a field, assassinated, Padre Bachelot recorded on the day of Domingo's burial. After the funeral, many of the mourners stood around the Campo Santo, stewing and scheming. They took an oath while dirt was still fresh on Domingo's grave. We swear, they vowed, by the bloody remains of our compatriot, to exterminate the odious villains who murdered him at the risk of our honor and our lives. The next morning, a search party discovered Charo in the hills outside of town, terrified, dirty, and wretched. She was quickly taken to be interrogated in a private home, while her lover was interrogated at the Curatel. The lovers immediately both implicated each other and confessed to the murder. In the public's mind, Charo and Hervasio were as good as dead. the arm of justice in colonial Mexico was long. Any murder conviction went to automatic appeal in far-off Mexico City, which meant the lover's execution could be months or years away. Tensions mounted in Los Angeles, and on Good Friday, the town council, feeling the couple would soon be lynched, issued an important measure. Whomsoever shall disturb the public tranquility shall be punished according to the law. Domingo's friends agreed to keep the peace until Easter came and went. After that holy day, they said all bets were off. On April 7, 1836, the Thursday after Easter Sunday, after a massive storm had battered the area and cleared, a group of 55 prominent citizens, men of course, who hailed from places as diverse as America, Mexico, and Europe, met at the home of John Temple, a wealthy member of the powerful Mexican-English Workman Temple family. Charo and Hervasio had picked the wrong time to commit a murder. Dissatisfaction with the far-off Mexican government was at an all-time high, and violence ran rampant in Southern California. The couple's murder of such a prominent, upright citizen was an affront to the veneer of order and respectability people like Doña Luisa and her husband thought they had helped put on this messy Wild West frontier. Presiding over the meeting was Victor Proudhon, a charming and handsome social butterfly from France. Proudhon's linguistic skills would aid him as secretary later that year to the revolutionary California governor Juan Batista Alvarado in his failed attempt to claim independence from Mexico. Proudhon made a rousing speech with gusto and aplomb. 
I am a foreigner born in the free land of France, distant from your own, he began. I reached manhood in Mexico City, the capital of your country, where I passed the florid years of my youth. My inborn sentiments of liberty and philanthropy made strong by examples offered on the part of the Mexican people. I have adopted as my own this land of yours, and I wish to share your lot, and I support your view of things. Proudhon proposed that they form a public safety defense council. The men enthusiastically agreed and voted unanimously for the immediate execution of both Charo and Hervasio. Domingo's father was the first to sign a petition addressed to L.A.'s mayor, which Proudhon and his associates then delivered to the city council. The council was already in an emergency meeting, trying to deal with the growing furor over the murder. Mayor Rakena read the petition, which stated immediate justice would be a check on a state of anarchy, where the might of the strongest is the only law. The petition continued, using Charo's maiden name, probably as a sign of disrespect. We demand of you that you execute or deliver to us for immediate execution the assassin Hervasio Alipas and the unfaithful Maria del Rosario Villa, his accomplice. Nature trembles at the sight of these venomous reptiles, and the soil turns barren in its refusal to support their detestable existence. Let the infernal pair perish. It is the will of the people. We will not lay down our arms until our petition is granted and the murderers are executed. The petition went on to highlight the continuing violence in the area and the fear and sorrow that unchecked crimes left behind. It continued, The blood still reeks of other unfortunate victims. Their bloody ghosts cry out for vengeance. Their trembling voices re-echo from the grave. The afflicted widow, the inconsolable mother, and the general public all demand speedy and solemn justice. We swear to have it today or to die trying. The blood of the murderers must be shed today, or ours will be, to the last drop. The world shall know that if judges in Los Angeles tolerate murder, there are virtuous citizens willing to sacrifice their lives to ensure those of their countrymen. Mayor Rakena and the city council were given one hour to make their decision. If no answer has been received by then, it was written, he will be responsible before God and the public for what will follow. Death to the murderers. As the council stood, an angry mob formed. The council members attempted to reason with the mob and then shut themselves in their chamber again. As the hour closed in, Proudhon sent a note inside stating that their time was almost up. An immediate answer is desired, and if it's not forthcoming, the junta shall be obliged to take extraordinary measures. And so what did the council do? Well, they basically gave up and chose not to wage a lonely struggle against a people armed and angry. A resolution was passed rejecting the junta's demands, and the council closed shop and went home. And so the plaza was left to the lynch mob. They descended on the curatel where Havasio was held. The lone guard on duty refused to give Proudhon's crew the keys, so they were taken by violence. When the crew burst into the cell, they found Havasio, defiant to the last, nearly free of his shackles thanks to a file he had hidden in his boot. You did well not to delay, Hervasio smiled, 
Had I more time, I would have cut my chains, and when the jailer came with my meal, I would have delivered the stroke and secured my freedom. Hervasio was dragged to the base of Fort Moore Hill, behind La Placita and the cemetery where his victim lay. Crowds of Angelinos stood in the plaza, leaning out of windows, and even stood on roofs to get a better view, as a stoic Hervasio was shot by a 12-man firing squad. He died instantly. Next up was Charo. The men of the lynch mob had special plans for her. According to one account, the men of the crew were especially enraged that her infidelity should have led to the first fragmentation of the family and then to murder. So much so that they wanted her to die, contemplating the corpse of her lover so that she would suffer more. A letter was sent to the mayor at his house. It is absolutely necessary that you deliver to this junta the key of the apartment where Maria del Rosario Villa is kept, God and Liberty. Again he declined, and again the keys to the private home where Charo was imprisoned were obtained by force. It was now the late afternoon. Charo was so frightened that the lynch mob took pity on her and simply drug her to Fort Moore Hill and shot her without the extra punishment of contemplating her dead lover's corpse. Once they were both dead, the bodies were carried into the plaza and laid out in display in front of the curatel. The lynch mob then sent a succinct note to the city council. The dead bodies of Hervasio Alipas and Maria del Rosario Villa are at your disposal. We also forward you the jail keys that you may deliver to whomsoever is on guard. In case you are in need of men to serve as guards, we are at your disposal. God and liberty. And so ended, historian James Miller Gunn once wrote, the only instance in 75 years of Spanish and Mexican rule in California of the people, by popular tribunal, taking the administration of justice out of the hands of the legally constituted authorities. In other words, they lynched them. Today, the lands that were once Rancho Los Feliz are the hip neighborhoods of Los Feliz and Silver Lake, and the mountainous and expansive public treasure that is Griffith Park. The area is said to be under a curse, put on it by a later scorned woman of the Felis family, but that is a different story for a different episode. Doña Luisa lived until 1857, lived to see California become part of America, the cattle and gold rush, and L.A. declared the most violent city in the country. She was buried in Mission San Gabriel, now a faded but serene tourist spot in Los Angeles County. You can also visit La Placita, where the body of Domingo Feliz lay. It's still an active Catholic church as well as a historical landmark. All that's left of the churchyard where he, Charo, and Domingo were buried is a lumpy garden of California dirt and flowers, a mixture of 100 or so anonymous bodies long presumed to have been removed to the new Catholic cemetery in the Victorian era. These bodies were rediscovered in 2010 during a construction project and reburied next to the church in 2011. But again, that is a story and scandal for another episode. It is impossible to know if the star-crossed lovers and their victim were among those reburied. Perhaps the bones of the victim lay jumbled next to those of his killers. Though if you think about it, maybe all three are victims. 
and now they lie eternally under the beating, punishing California sun. I'm Hadley Mears, and you can follow me online at Hadley Mears, H-A-D-L-E-Y-M-E-A-R-E-S. You can follow Underbelly LA on Twitter at Underbelly LA Pod. We're also on Facebook. Just search for Underbelly LA. Listen to all future episodes of this podcast by going to underbellyla.com. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and anywhere else you'd normally find a podcast. Every episode of this show is researched, written, and read by me, Hadley Mears. The show is produced by Drew Mackey and edited by Mika Grimm. The music for this podcast was composed by Donovan Dorrance. The logo was designed by Sarah Wickham. Underbelly LA is a Table Cakes podcast. Table Cakes is a Los Angeles-based, woman-owned podcast company. And if you want to learn about other shows on this network, go to tablecakes.com. If you want to support Underbelly LA, check out our digital tip jar at patreon.com slash underbellyla. Join us next time as we delve into the life of Bartolo Ballerino, who ran the brothels of 19th century LA with an iron fist and a cold, gold-plated heart. A Table Cakes production. <laughs>